chapter 4 is where we'll be this morning. Our third week in the series on the ascension. And um, we're doing so for obvious reasons. We're looking at this event, this historical and salvation event called the ascension when Christ rose into the air and ascended to the Father and sat down at the right hand of God the Father. And what is the significance of that? Why would a church call itself Ascension Church? And as we dive into the Scriptures, we see there's actually quite a number of reasons. It's actually a profound how much that event ties together so much of what the Scriptures have been geared towards and, and going towards. And so we've looked at how it meant that Christ has done it all when He ascended. He did so showing that His work on earth for now is done. It is finished. He has done it all. Last week we looked that He is over all. It's His dominion. Of course, when He was exalted, that implies that He is over all. He, he is reigning and ruling, and so He has authority over our lives. And we're going to switch now to kind of a different side of the coin, so to speak, for the next two weeks. Not so much what it has accomplished, but what it does in us, this ascension, what it does to the church. And today we're going to be looking at that Christ is in it all, that we have a vocation as a church that is a calling to make much of Christ in every part of our life because He has ascended. And then next week we'll look at formation, how He becomes our all. But we're going to go to a famous passage in Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll read the first 16 verses together. It's in your bulletin as well. Let's read these words together. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a, coast, a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body is joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. 
when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. So a couple weeks ago, uh, I was asleep. It was uh, in the middle of the night, about 1.30 in the morning, and I, I heard kind of, you know how sounds happen outside, and they kind of get incorporated in your dreams for a few minutes, and then, and then they become a reality, kind of like the hap- that happens in movies, that happens to me. I heard in my, my sleep this distant chirping sound, and um, it took a few minutes for me to wake up to, to it, and like, did I dream that? And but then I finally woke up and I heard, yes, there is the unmistakable chirping of a smoke detector who has, that, that has run out of battery. You all know that this happens, and it never happens in the daytime, at least not at my house. I always have to get up in the middle of the night to address the chirping smoke detector. And so I, I got out of bed. I was extremely groggy. And I wandered around throughout the house, you know, because you got to do that, right? Because you don't know where it comes from. It's like they, they purposefully make those sounds like they, they're coming from everywhere. And so you have to, like, stand in a part of the house like, you know, an idiot just standing there. It's like, oh, yeah, it's over there. And you start walking towards it. And you got to find your way towards the chirping. And so I did that for a few minutes. And uh, it was located, the one that was out of battery was located in a room that we were painting at the time. So we actually had drop cloths on the floor and, pa- and tape everywhere and all the furniture pushed to the middle of the room and we're painting that room. And, and I realized that this smoke detector, which is on the ceiling, right underneath it was a step stool that I'd been using for painting. Literally, the only place in the house that had a ladder of any kind was underneath the very place where I needed to step up and change out that smoke detector. It was amazing. I had to move it just like two inches. I just kind of pushed it forward, and, uh, and then I was able to you know, address the smoke detector. I remember in my grogginess thanking the Lord Jesus Christ for giving me that ladder at that moment because I was so tired and I wanted to go back to bed. Now, how do we interpret such an event, such an amazing uh, you know, coincidence, such an amazing thing. Is it a happy circumstance? Of course it is. But <clears throat> what, does it, what does it mean that that was there? And, and is it right? Like, and I'm, I mean this in all sincerity, even though it's a, kind of a silly example. Is, is it right to thank God for that step stool in that moment? How do we interpret such an event? Do we interpret our lives theologically, like where, where we see what happens in our life as God's work? Now, let me give you a few caveats before we go too far afield on this question. Let me tell you a few things I'm not saying. I'm not saying that everything that happens in your life is positive, that's positive is correlated to this. I'm not saying that if you're spiritual enough, that God will always provide the proverbial step stool under the proverbial smoke detector. You get what I'm saying? I'm not, it, it actually could have been God's purposes to put that smoke detector in the worst possible place in my, you know, in my house so that I had to spend an hour figuring out where it was and, and all these things. That could have happened. And God would have been in that as well. 
I also don't mean when I say that is God in these things, we interpret our lives theologically, that we have some kind of pantheistic understanding that, that God's in the smoke detector and God is, is, you know, in the step stools of our life and, and therefore we need to like see him as part of everything. That's not also what I'm saying. It also doesn't mean that we have to forcibly spiritualize everything down to the minutest detail of our lives. What I am saying, though, this morning is, do we understand our lives, and not just our ideas, not just our minds, not just, you know, our big picture, like, what do I do with my life and career, but, but down to the very substance of our life, do we understand those theologically? Meaning, do we see that God is working in our lives? He is in it all. I think that's a struggle for for many of us. Still, many of us think of our spiritual life as something over here, and our actual life as something over here, and and the two might blend sometimes when you're at a summer camp or something, but but they they largely are separate domains that that have separate goals. And so Christ becomes a part or a slice of our lives. The scriptures don't speak about it this way. And actually, in this passage, Paul uses the ascension that Christ rose and finished his work and, and leading a host of captives, he ascended to actually tie together this fact, he fills everything. He fills the space between earth and heaven. He is in it all. That's what I want us to see Today, the ascension means that Christ becomes the focus of all of life. Not just the spiritual side, all of life. Christ becomes the focus of all of life. Christ is in it all. And right in the middle of our passage, we have the ascension here where he, when he ascended on high, verse 8, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that for the purpose of he might fill all things. This is not a new concept in Paul. It's not even new in Ephesians. If you go back to Ephesians chapter 1, you see Paul say this, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of of him who fills all in all. The church is to reflect, the the vocation of the church is to reflect the oneness that Christ fills everything, all in all. Colossians chapter 1, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. It is as though Paul is saying, In these couple of places and many other places I could go to, that Christ, when he ascended, when he finished that loop, when the incarnation, the downward movement, and then he finished the loop ascending, he actually tied together heaven and earth and all things are united in him. And in each of these passages we see there's an implication then for the body of Christ. There is a calling, there is a vocation that we as a church are invited into because Christ has filled all things. Now when I say vocation today, I'm not primarily talking about what our daily jobs are, even though God 
certainly fills those as well. We had a whole series on vacation a, a couple of years ago and a, a devotional to go through that. So those are important questions and not unrelated. But what I'm talking about is the, the calling of the church to make Christ all in all. What does that look like for Christ to be in it all? Two things I want us to see today that we can shape so that Christ is all in all. It's first cultivating the walk of Christ and secondly cultivating the gifts of Christ. If we cultivate a walk in Christ and the gifts of Christ, then we more and more see Christ in all. First, cultivating the walk of Christ. This is the command of verse 1, which is the new section in the book of Ephesians. If you read Ephesians, it's kind of all theology, all his, what Christ has done up through the first three chapters. The final three chapters are walking worthy of that, of that call, same way that Romans is structured. But here's the change in verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Our vocation, our calling as a church, because of the ascended Christ, is that we would have a walk. We would have an attitude. We would have a focus. And it's, it's the walk, to describe it in one word, is a walk of unity, a horizontal unity, a unity with one another, and a unity with the one Lord, with Christ himself, with God the Father and the Spirit. There's a horizontal unity. Look at verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He's talking about our horizontal relationships, that we are to reflect the unity of, of Christ in the way that we treat one another. All of us, therefore, have a vocation of a Christ-like character. We are called as a people, not just to use our gifts, we're going to talk about that in a moment, but there's a, there's a kind of uh, unified vocation of all of us that we are to walk in a certain way. It's with these things, with gentleness, bearing with one another. The very character of Christ needs to animate the way that we treat one another horizontally. But there's also a, a vertical unity where we are united with the one God and Father, starting in verse 4. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We have a unity with the God who is one. We have one direction. There is one God and if there's one God, then it makes sense that there is one faith for that God. And if there's one faith, then it makes sense that there's one marker for the entrance into that baptism, as we've seen this morning. And so the oneness that we experience horizontally is a reflection, ultimately, of the oneness that God has in and of Himself and that we have with Him. And I just want to stop for a second and say, can we feel the relief and the joy of that calling? Your life has one purpose. 
It has one overall direction. And so many of us, we we feel lost, we feel directionless, we feel like, what am I doing with my life? And there is a great comfort here to, to come to this and see that God is one, and He has called us into His oneness. Look what He says, this one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. That's about as comprehensive as you could write that statement. Imagine a life cultivated with that attitude, with that walk. One life that is over all and through all and in all. One purpose. Then we see all the pieces of our lives then have a, a direction with a Old Greek word, the telos, an overall focus. And so when we go for a walk, it's not that we're just going for a walk. It's not an unspiritual task. It actually, when you go for a walk, you're in the presence of the Lord. You're you're exercising. There's lots of different things that you're doing, but there is a, a unity to what you're doing. When you make sales at your job, it's not that you're turning your brain off and saying, well, now I'm going to do sales and I'm not going to do spiritual things. When you're making sales, you're saying God is over this, meaning He has authority. He is through this sale, meaning He has purposes and directions for it. And He is in this, meaning He is present. Now, obviously, you don't have to say those things under your breath every time you make a sale, right? But the whole perspective is, is that God has brought us into this unified focus. And so all of our life fits into it. And we're invited then to do what we please and to live a life that is enjoyable and meaningful and all the things that are, that are good. But at the same time, the thing that makes it good overall is that it's unified, it's whole, because it has as its direction the God of the universe. This is the way that Christ lived. He walked in a manner worthy of the calling to which he was called. In him, the scripture says, there was no deceit. There was no guile. There was no inconsistency. He said, my food and my drink is to do the will of the Father. He had an integrated, if you will, life. He walked the walk that Israel could not walk, the walk that they were called to walk as as God's people, His chosen and special set-apart people. They failed in their vocation, but He was able to carry them through their vocation and to live this consistent life. Cultivating the walk of Christ is everyone who calls themselves a Christian's vocation. It's our calling. And it's actually a beautiful and inviting thing. But the second thing that we cultivate is not just the walk of Christ. We're cultivating the gifts of Christ. And here I don't mean the gift of Christ in the sense that it's Christ himself. What I mean is the gifts that he gives. This is cultivating the gifts that he has given to us. Beginning in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, why does verse 7 begin with but? That's a contrasting 
word. But, so it's in contrast to what he said before. What has he said before? He's talking about the unity. He's talking about the togetherness, the oneness. So in contrast to that, that doesn't mean certain things. It doesn't mean that we are all going to live the same lives or do the same things or have the same gifts. So he's going to talk about now the diversity within our unity. That we have been united, first of all, there's kind of a baseline vocation that we're called into to be gentle, to be unified, to love one another, to reflect the unity of Christ. And then there's, there's something beyond that, though. There is a calling that is specific to us. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. It's a beautifully written piece of Scripture as we see Paul demonstrating, even while he's talking about the unity and the diversity, he's giving us an example, even the way that he writes this. I wonder if you picked up on the example that he's using. It's the Trinity. Throughout this, five times he says, one. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, one, 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 one. Then why is he mentioning the Spirit and Jesus Christ and the Father? The whole passage has a Trinitarian shape. And so he's showing us, even as he writes about this unity and diversity, that it exists within the Godhead. That there is one Lord, and yet there is a Spirit who brings the bond of peace. And there's a Christ who gives gifts. And there's the Father who's over all and in all and through all. And so there is this unity and diversity even within God Himself. And so what we're being invited into, our vocation is to grow up into Him in every way. And therefore, we're growing up into the unity and the diversity of what he has called us to, a worthy walk, and yet a specific gift given by Christ. What are these gifts like? What are the gifts that Christ gives us? And we got to start by explaining uh, verse 8 through 10, because they're confusing when you read them, perhaps, as we read them before, like, what does this have to do with anything? Let me read them for it. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high... He led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. Now what is this, what is this talking about? Why does Paul interject this? And if you're reading from an actual scripture text, maybe it's this way in the bulletin I didn't see. It's kind of set apart this uh, when he ascended on high. This is a quote from Psalm 68, or it's an allusion, actually, to Psalm 68. It's not an exact quote, but he is grabbing Psalm 68 and applying it to what Christ has done. Psalm 68 is a psalm of God's victory over his enemies, his salvation conquest. 
his historical victories, leading the people of God out of the land of Egypt into the promised land. And it has this picture, this almost like a triumphant parade of God bringing the treasures of, of Israel from Egypt all the way to Mount Sinai and where he, he sits and he is over his enemies. And he ascends Mount Sinai and he dwells with his people there. And what Paul is saying here is that what, what God has done in Israel's story is what he has done in Christ. He has led this host of captives. He has defeated all of these enemies in his life and in his death and in his resurrection and in his ascension. He has finished this work. He's led this host of captives. And so now Christ sits on the throne just like God was on top of Mount Sinai in Psalm 68. He's sitting there and he gives gifts to men. He's sitting in a place of seated authority. So he has everything. He's accomplished everything. It's all his. And out of that abundance, he then gives in different measures gifts. Don't get confused by verse 9, and saying he ascended. What does it mean that he also descended? What, what is that verse talking about? It's actually, uh, it's confusing when you first read it, but it's very simple to understand, actually. What he's saying is, don't worry, I know that, that God can't ascend without going down first. What's higher than God? He is, he's already the ascended one. He's already high. So all Paul is saying here is, look, I'm not saying that God could go higher than himself. What I'm saying is first he had to go down. First he had to incarnate himself. First he had to be amongst us in order to ascend because there's nowhere for God to ascend. That's what he's saying. But now that he has ascended, he gives gifts to his servants in the same way that a conquering king would receive all the spoils of war and then distribute by his own will and his own measure to those faithful servants, Christ now in his victory gives to his church, not just broadly, but to each one of us, verse 7 says, each one of us gifts. The first gifts that he gives are the founders and the offices of his church. Verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So he gives these offices, these callings, these specific callings first. And we're going to go into what each one of these means, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists. I believe there's actually just four categories here, not five, where he says, at the end, shepherds and teachers, grammatically, those two could be just like a hyphenated word. I think it is. Shepherd, teacher. And it could be that this is kind of a historical understanding, too, that it started with the apostles, and now we don't have apostles, and then prophets. I'm not going to go into all of that this morning. The point is, he gives these offices to the church for the church's benefit, and so, I'm a shepherd teacher. This is what God's called me to do. But to do what? He gives us a paradigm for ministry. And as we begin 
this church, Ascension Church of Phoenix, we need to have this paradigm, which is found in verse 12, as the ultimate paradigm for how we do ministry here. The paradigm is this. God gave vocational ministers for the purpose of equipping the saints for the work of ministry. It's a very significant understanding to, to switch from, now it's, there's people that are called to ministry, and there's people that get paid to do ministry, and then they do the ministry, and we help them and support them and pay them, and it's a distancing thing. That's not the paradigm that the Scripture gives. It says that He gives the gift of ministers so that the saints can do the work of ministry. It's a different paradigm, certainly, than the pastor as CEO, certainly as the pastor who does all the work or anything like that. And so, some people have asked me the question before, I wonder if I'm called to ministry, and my snarky answer to that is always like, yes, you are. (laughs) If you're a Christian, you're called to ministry. This is what he's teaching here. All of us are called to use our gifts. This week, uh, I was at a, a tailor, uh, believe it or not. Um, those are still around. I was getting a suit for our particularization service. You don't have to dress up for the particularization service, but I'm being installed as a pastor, so get a new suit. So I was at the tailor, which I relish saying because I never get to say that. Um, <clears throat> I was at the tailor, and... Um, the tailor is talking to me about what this event is that we're doing, and I'm explaining it to him and everything, and, and um, he, he didn't have English as his first language, he's from Greece, and he was talking to me, and, uh, and he kept saying the same phrase over and over again. Uh, he's one of those guys that was like not an organized religion guy, uh, but like, you know, faith is important, it's good for the founding principles of our country, that kind of thing, but I'm not really into faith myself, and that was kind of his perspective, uh, but he kept saying thank you to me, he said thank you, thank you. Thank you for servicing God. That was the phrase that he kept using over and over again. Thank you for servicing God. Like implying that I was doing all of this work for God. And what what I wanted to say, but couldn't really while he was, you know, sticking pins in me and that kind of stuff. Like, you know, I'm not servicing God. Actually, he's given us gifts, myself, to, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. I had Ephesians 4 in my mind. It's like, we're all in this together. And so what I'm meant to do is to equip others to have, to give their life as an offering to Christ and to see Him as in all. So it's not just vocational ministers who have gifts. It is all the body. As I said from verse 7, each one of us according to Christ's gift. You are called to cultivate the gifts that Christ has given you. How do we do that? How do we cultivate those gifts? Let me give us just a few things as we close today. I want to give you an exercise to do and then three questions to ask that arise from this passage that would help you align and cultivate your gifts The first is the exercise, which is to figure out what your desires are. Of course, God works in and through our own desires. What do you want to do to serve the body? 
Another way that you could ask yourself and go through this question is, what are my holy discontents? It's a phrase, I don't know where it originated from, but it's a good one. Holy discontents, what meaning when I look at the world or I look at the church or I look at my small group or whatever it is, what, what makes me ambitious towards something? What, what, what am I discontented with? I wish the church was, was more hospitable. And that's a holy discontent. Well, then, then you can try to be hospitable, right? Because out of that holy discontent, then you begin to be the body of Christ in the gifts that God has given you. What are your desires? How do you want to serve? It's a good place to start. Obviously, that's where pretty much everything starts. I mean, even uh, a calling like mine, to, like you have to, to want to to, to go into you know, vocational ministry, to, to endure four years of seminary, all these things. Like, you have to want something first. What are your desires? And then, as my spiritual director tells me all the time, there's desires, and then there's the discipline of desires. How can I discipline these desires? In other words... It's fine and well and good to desire to teach. But if you never seek an opportunity to teach, then, then you're not disciplining that desire. So what are my desires, but how do I discipline those desires? How do I create scenarios where I can use my gifts? And if I can't create those scenarios, or if I'm not motivated enough, then perhaps those aren't strong desires. There's the desires, and then there's the discipline of desires. You can start small with that discipline. Teaching is the example I used. What if you want to teach? Well, it's unlikely that you'll be skilled or have an opportunity to teach a large group of people if you have never exercised that gift. But you can disciple one person. You can teach one person. How are you disciplining the desires? Then ask yourself these three questions which I'm taking from Ephesians chapter 4. And really get at the heart of what this calling is, this vocation. We're all to be the church, but how do I be the church with my gifts? Number one, ask this, am I driven by envy or pride? Am I driven by envy or pride? By envy, I mean, do I want to do something because I'm jealous of someone else's gifts? By pride, I mean... Do I enjoy my gifts as being superior to others? Look, spiritual gifts, the way that Paul talks about it in Ephesians 4, is where envy and pride come to die. Look at verse 7 again. But grace was given to each one of us according to what? To the measure of Christ's gift. To the measure of Christ's gift that means that pride and envy are excluded. If it's according to what Christ has given, it is going to be the case that some people are more gifted than others. That's the, that is the reality, but that's okay because you haven't been given all of the gifts. It's also going to be the case that pride dies. Why? Because Christ gave it to you. You didn't, you're not naturally, if you are a gifted person or if you have many gifts, it's only because Christ doled it out to you. It's not because of you. 
And so I love that it's grace that's given to each one of us. It's kind of a unique way of phrasing that. In, the, in even Ephesians itself, grace, the word grace is used a couple of different ways. There is first the, the free, unmerited favor of God, which he talks about just two, two chapters earlier. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith, that's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, so no one should boast. That grace is God's grace towards you. It's that unmerited grace. But then here he's talking about enabling grace, we might say. It's the grace not just to be accepted by God, but grace to do things that God has given you to do. He's prepared good works for us in advance, the Scripture says. It's not as though we have these abilities that He wants us on His team. He brings us onto His team by His saving grace, and then He enables us out of that grace that He has to gift His church. Both of them are completely unmerited. Both of them are from God Himself. Both salvation and gifting come from the storehouse of Christ's grace. And so the gospel, which is that we have received this grace, the good news means that there is no boasting. Whatever we have, we have because Christ gave it to us. And there's no envy because whatever we have, is what he wants us to use. We have what's needed, and that's enough. Am I driven by envy or pride? Second question, what can I do that would really help? The way that Paul talks about this in verse 12, for instance, as he says, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. These gifts are for growing and building up the body of Christ. We are to grow up in every way, as he says later in the passage. Our spiritual gifts, therefore, are not primarily about our fulfillment and enjoyment and identity. They are about building up the body. We focus on helping and then we derive identity and enjoyment secondarily. It's okay to find enjoyment in, in your gifts, of course. But if that's what's leading it, then you have a, a focus that's different than what Paul is saying here. Third question we might ask, am I willing to seek and receive honest feedback? Jumping down to verse 15 where he says, Rather, this is the way the church should work, speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. Speaking the truth. Actually, the, the, word, the participle there is, is truth. It's truthing. That's what we could... Truthing in love. That we're to be people that are constantly giving the truth to one another in love. Surrounded by that first vocation, right? Our first calling to be unified, to be generous, to be gracious to one another, to be one. But in that context, speaking the truth, truthing one another. We run our, soul, our gifts through that, that list. We come close to what Paul is talking about here as we determine our gifts. The truth is 
that the more that we walk and cultivate that walk in Christ and we cultivate the gifts that we have in Christ, we begin to see more and more of our life as being in Him. When we walk in a worthy manner and we, we use our gifts, then our life becomes filled with Christ. The ascended Christ is in all, not just a piece of my life. He is actually through it all, in it all, above it all. Let's pray.